2 Corinthians. This morning we're going to look at the first six verses in chapter 4. Uh, last week we saw the Apostle Paul uh, compare and contrast the Old Covenant, or the Law, uh, with the New Covenant, which was written in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Old Covenant we talked about was based on on the individual or the person's performance, were you able to keep the law? That dictated what your relationship was like with the Lord. But the new covenant is based on the performance of Jesus Christ. It's written in the blood that he shed on the cross. It's based on his spotless life as he kept the law perfectly because we could not. Uh, the old covenant demanded a penalty be paid when the law was violated. It required that blood be shed and an innocent spotless sacrifice be made. Under the new covenant, Jesus paid that penalty for you and for me. And it's very important when you study the scriptures, especially about the work of the cross, that you see it personally. It, it's, it's, sometimes we have a tendency to generalize it, but it's, it's personal. It's me. I, it's my sin that was paid for. It's your sin that was paid for. He was that innocent and spotless sacrifice. So let's read. Uh, I'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, then we'll come back and we'll talk about it as Paul tells us about our responsibilities as stewards of this new covenant. So chapter 4, verse 1. He said, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Turn me down just a little bit, Kevin. I hear a little tingy in the background, please. Paul begins by saying, therefore, we have this ministry. What ministry? What ministry are you talking about, Paul? What ministry do we have? It's this ministry of the new covenant. It's this idea that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's the gospel message. We have this ministry. And Paul had spent most of the previous chapter talking about this ministry of the new covenant, that we have it. The new covenant is this relationship that mankind can now have with God, not based on his works, but based on what Jesus Christ accomplished at the cross. The finished work that was done at the cross now allows the bridge between man and God to be built, allows us to come boldly into the throne room of God, where without that, we're nothing but sinners. We're separated from God by our sin. This new covenant is what brings a person to salvation. It what, it's what brings transformation in somebody's life. It's what brings the eternal hope of heaven, as we sang in the last song during worship. This new covenant is powerful. It's life-changing. It's something that we have been given as stewards. Not just me as the pastor. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. You're going to notice he's going to use the word we a lot. Yes, Paul had it, but we have it too. And as Paul looks upon his ministry of the new covenant, he sees or he saw it as though it was as though he was entrusted something. I'm going to give you something. Take care of it. Spread the word. Tell people about it. Hold it close to you. Don't take it for granted. And you're entrusted. 
be a good steward with this new covenant, Paul. That's the way he saw it. He'd been given something. He was required to be a good steward of what he was ministering. And as a former blasphemer, as a former, former arrogant persecutor of the church, as someone who thought nothing of putting Christians in jail or, or watching standing by while Christians are killed, God had showed Paul mercy. Paul knew what mercy meant. Paul knew that he deserved punishment for what he had done to the church and the believers, for the way he had treated them, but he also knows the Lord had showed him mercy. The definition of mercy, it's not getting what you deserve. Don't mix it up with grace. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. For the way that Paul behaved to the church, he deserved judgment and punishments. But he found mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. He found mercy there. Because he had been given this ministry of the new covenant, because he had found mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart in ministering the new covenant. We do not lose heart in sharing the gospel. All the apostle Paul endures throughout his life, all the difficulties, all the hardship, all the beatings, all the shipwrecks, bitten by snakes, rejected, stoned, all the things that he, not that kind of stoned, rocks, sorry, rocks, that kind of stone. All the rejection he had, he said this, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. It's not an option. To lose heart means to lose one's motivation, to accomplish some valid goal, to become discouraged, to lose heart, or to give up. And notice he's using the word we. We do not lose heart in the new covenant. We do not lose heart in sharing the gospel. As pastor, I need to hear this. All pastors need to hear this. The cool thing is this message will go out over the radio station in, in the future time and pastors will tune in and listen and they need to hear. Paul does not, says we do not lose heart because we are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we don't get discouraged. It doesn't mean we don't need to be reminded of these things. But we continue on in the faith because we have been entrusted with something. We've been given something and there's no way that we can lose heart of it. I want you to notice, as I said earlier, the word we. You see, sometimes you can come across a scripture like this and go, oh, that's just for the pastor. It's okay for me to lose heart. In the, I haven't been given what he's been given. Oh, yes, you have. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a minister of the new covenant. And Paul says, do not lose heart with it. This is what kept Paul going. It's what kept him ministering. Along with the new covenant, Paul tells the readers he also received mercy. He talks about the mercy received. He was aware of the mercy he was given. He had a real live picture of the mercy that was given to him, that was shown to him, that he, doesn't, that he was not getting what he deserved. Are you aware of the mercy of God in your life? You see, too often as Christians, we just take it for granted. It's just something that God's obligated to do. It's something that he must do. Are you aware of the mercy that you've been shown? Are you aware that you and I, together, we deserve judgment for our sins? Well, Rob, my sins aren't that bad. No, if there's sin in your life, period, the punishment is judgment. The punishment is death. Well, no, nah, God's not that way. No, if he wasn't that way, he wouldn't be just. If he could overlook one person's sins in light of another person's sins, well, they're not as bad, so I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to judge them. You see, we've deserved judgment and condemnation, but we've given mercy. We've been given mercy. We've been shown mercy in light of it. 
in light of the fact that we've rejected the Lord so many times, in light of the fact that we've taken things that don't belong to us, in light of the fact that our attitudes are bad, in light of the fact that we say things that we shouldn't say, in light of the fact that we do things we shouldn't do, we look at things we shouldn't look at, we treat people the way we shouldn't be treated, and the Lord says, I'll show you mercy. Too often we minimize it, and we don't have a full account of the mercy we've been shown because we forget all the bad things in our life. We don't want to remember those. We want to remember how great we were. Sometimes, even as Christians, we go back to the past. Oh, the good old days. Before I met Jesus, I was a partier. I did this. I did that. No, 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 no. Those were, those were, those, for those things that you think were so much fun, we deserve condemnation and judgment. The Lord says, well, if you'll turn to me, I'll forgive those things. And I'll create in you a new heart. And I'll give you a new life. And you can walk with me. And I'm going to teach you. And I'm going to grow you. And I'm going to change you. I love hearing the testimonies of people that have been changed by the word of God. It's amazing to watch. They realize the mercy that they've been shown. Paul does. Listen to the way Paul explains it to the church in Ephesus. I'm going to read to you just from Ephesians chapter 2. A few verses here. But God, who is rich in mercy. Why God? Because of his great love which, with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, lest anyone would boast about it. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Jot it down. Read it later. You need to remember that. God has showed us and he's poured out upon us his mercy, abundant mercy. In James chapter 2, the Bible tells us that mercy has triumphed over judgment. Mercy's triumphed over judgment. Paul saw, Paul saw this ministry of the new covenant at something that didn't compare to the trials that he faced. I'll endure whatever I have to endure, but I'm going to be found a good steward with the word of God, with this new covenant. I'll do what I have to do. I'll face the difficulties. I'll walk through, the, through, through what I have to walk through. But I'm going to take this covenant, this ministry that I've been given, and I'm going to be a good steward with it. You see, I don't think we always see it that way. Do you realize that as Christians, we have too have been given this new covenant? We've been given this ministry. Do you see, it? Do you see yourself? I have to be a good steward with my money, but are you a good steward with the gospel? Are you a good steward with the good news? In light of all these things, Paul said, we don't lose heart. We keep going. Well, I haven't been a very good steward. Then become one. We don't lose heart. Well, I'm, I'm getting persecuted. Who cares? Don't lose heart. Keep going. We do, we do not lose heart. The mercy we were received, it's what drives us to share the new covenant with each of you. When I have been forgiven much, when I see, the reason I stand here is because what the word of God has done in my life, I want to go share it with you. I want to share it with you. No, Rob, you just get a paycheck. You guys know I don't get a paycheck for being here. I'm getting paid eternally in heaven. I know that. But I, I, what, what, what drives me to stand here and teach the scriptures to you week in and week out, Thursday night, Sunday night, is because I see the effect the Bible has had on my life personally. And I want to see it have an effect on yours too. That's why I'm here. That's it. That's, that's the reason. Because the Lord has called me to do that. And I love doing it. I get a chance to do it. And when I hear the stories of how you guys go and tell me, oh, my life's changing. 
This thing you said, I didn't say it, the Lord said it. This thing that the Lord did, this thing that you mentioned, the scripture, I love hearing those stories because you're experiencing what I experienced and we grow together in that way. Because of the, God's mercy and the fact that he has entrusted us with this new covenant, Paul told us something that we do not do, which is we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. But he goes on here in the scriptures to tell us three things that they have done, or these are things that we should do also. They're things that, we should, that's things that would separate Paul's ministry from other people's ministries, from the ministry of false teachers who are usually out seeking personal gain. Number one, there in verse two, he says, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame. We have renounced the hidden things of shame. From the moment Paul came to salvation on the road to Damascus, he renounced his former hidden life of shame. He despised his sin. He cried out for deliverance from it. Remember what he said in Romans, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. To renounce something, it means to give it up, to put it aside, to reject it, to refuse to own or acknowledge belonging to something. To, he renounced, he put aside, he rejected his former life. His Christian life became a pursuit of purity and a passion for holiness. One commentator explained it this way. I really like this. He said, when people see the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ and are born again, when they understand who God is, what his holy law demands, and the provision of salvation in Jesus Christ, they renounce and turn from their sin and devote themselves to the pursuit of godliness. A repentance that does not involve turning from sin is foreign in the scriptures. It doesn't exist. Have you renounced your former life? Have you renounced it? Or are you still identified by it? Have you turned from the hidden things of shame that once led you around captive? Are you are you trying to live your former life before Christ as a Christian? We would call those lukewarm Christians, carnal Christians, whatever you want to call them, however, whatever title you want to give. Well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm still doing everything the way I've always done it. There's been no renouncing. There's been no turning from. There's been no repentance. There's been no turning away from. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying Christians are perfect. But once someone comes to Christ, there's a desire to pursue holiness. Even if you fail, you realize that's not okay. I can't continue in this path. I've got, to, I've got to continue seeking the Lord. You can't be a good steward of the new covenant of the gospel if you have not renounced the former life. You can't do it. it what, what, what message would that share? Jesus loves you. Keep on sinning. Jesus loves you. He died for you. Keep on sinning. No, if he died for me, when I'm, why would I keep doing the very thing that I need freedom from? So there's got to be a renouncing. There's got to be a turning away from. And if you are having trouble renouncing the old life. If you are having difficulty going, well, that's hard, then you don't really understand the mercy you've received. You don't really understand the judgment you deserve. You're minimizing it. You're saying, well, no, no, I am not that bad. I don't really deserve that. In your eyes, you're not that bad. You don't get to set the standard for good and bad. God set the standard for good and bad, and he did it in the word of God. If you violate it, you're that bad. That's what he's saying. No, Rob, I'm not that bad. I'm not, I'm not nearly as bad as that person over there. Maybe you're not, but you're still a sinner. You're still falling short of the glory of God. Maybe you haven't done a sin that bad. Maybe you don't have a big, long bragamony about how bad you were before you got saved, but you're still a sinner. 
Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you've always been following Christ. You still need a Savior. I'm having trouble. You need to understand the mercy. Well, no, Rob, I've, I've never strayed. I've always been a Christian. I've always been in church. I've always believed. That's great, but you're still a sinner. You still make mistakes. No, they're not that. I haven't done anything that bad. Yes, you have. You've violated the covenant between God and man. You've violated the law. You need a Savior. Well, it's still not that bad. Yes, it is. As Christians, we've received the mercy of God. We must renounce the hidden things of shame, even if you think they're not that bad. In light of Paul, in light of God's mercy, Paul also says, we don't walk in craftiness. We're not walking in craftiness. We're not walking that way. It refers to walking in trickery and deceit. The false teachers who would come into the churches that Paul had planted, they had a hidden agenda. They wanted to win people over. They were manipulators of the gospel. They peddled the gospel for their own personal gain. It wasn't about the gospel. It was about them. They wanted the attention. They wanted to be well-known. They wanted to have a fan club. They wanted these things. They made it look and sound like it was all about Jesus. But it was really about them. It wasn't about the Lord. It was about them. It was about building their kingdom, not his kingdom. They would teach and share the gospel in craftiness, deceitfully twisting it. They were willing to do or say anything to accomplish their goal. They sought to draw people unto themselves. Look at how many people I have. I absolutely despise that when one pastor says to another pastor, how many people are in your church? What difference does it make? What difference does it make if it's five, if it's two, or if it's 2,000, or if it's 3,000, or if it's 10,000? What difference does that make? If you're serving the people that God brings you, who really cares? But somehow in our mind, we evaluate, oh, he's got a bigger church. He must be a better pastor. Perhaps he's just drawing people to himself. Not saying that every big church is that way, but perhaps he is. Perhaps his motivation is wrong. You see, they relied on various worldly methods and techniques to motivate people. They played on people's emotions. They manipulated them. They entertained them with great oratory skills. Paul, on the other hand, he refused these kinds of methods. He didn't, he didn't do these methods. He refused these kinds of methods. Paul preached an openly true gospel. Simply, anyone could look at what Paul preached and see that it's just plain truth. It's easy to understand. He didn't use big words. He didn't make it hard to understand. He didn't preach an elaborate system of hidden mysteries strung about with a long line of legalism behind it. He just made it simple to understand and how to apply it to your life. The, Judaiz- the Judaizers that would come in did this. They preached this complicated gospel. The message put people in bondage. It didn't set them free. And along with this craftiness, Paul said, he said this, we do not handle the word of God deceitfully. There at the end of verse 2, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. The word deceitful, it means this. It means to dilute or adulterate. To dilute. We do not dilute the word of God. We do not adulterate the word of God. The Apostle Paul was accused of that. He was accused of deceitfully handling handling the word of God. The critics, the Judaizers, they accused him of leaving out certain portions of scripture that were necessary for salvation. Like the fact that you must convert to Judaism, or you must be circumcised, or you must continue to follow the law. Paul didn't teach those things because they weren't necessary. Paul did not dilute the word of God. As a pastor, I need to be reminded of that too. Don't dilute the word of God. Teach it what it says. God wrote it for a purpose. And i got to confess, there's times where I come to certain scriptures and I go, man, can I just skip over that? Can I just, maybe I'll just breeze through it real quick this week. Maybe I'll just, yeah, I don't want to teach that one. I know, I'll I'll, I'll get sick. I'll make Kevin teach it. (laughs) Bring Jordan up here. Let him teach that section. 
No. Paul says, don't dilute the word of God. Teach it like it, like it was written. These things that they were accusing Paul of, they weren't true. These critics, these Judaizers, they wanted to be followers of Christ, but they wanted to live according to Jewish customs. These self-appointed apostles preached a gospel that contained grace through Jesus Christ, but it was also a works-based, and it forced people to live in a certain way. As a pastor, the thought of handling the word of God deceitfully, it's frightening to me. Think about how scary that is. Think about that. If I twist it, if I dilute it, if I water it down, then I am teaching you guys improperly. And someday I have to answer for that. The pastor who takes scripture out of context, the pastor who twists it to support his popular three-point message is handling the word of God deceitfully. I am not against topical messages. Please don't misunderstand that. Why don't you do more topical messages? I'm not that creative. I just find it better and easier to teach it the way he wrote it. But I do do topical messages from time to time. I'm not saying I'm against that. I'm not saying our way is the only way. But I am against those who manipulate the scripture, those who take it out of context, those who manipulate people into doing what they want them to do. They take a scripture and we're having a building funds. So we're going to teach on tithing today. We're having this. And we want to accomplish that. We're going to teach on this. Have you noticed that we don't do that here? There's no, there's no fundraisers happening. There's no bake sale taking place. There's no, there's no, you know, we're planning a missions trip to Brazil. We're, there's no fundraiser coming for that. Well, what about how are people going to raise money? The Lord's going to provide. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, if you guys feel led to give to the missions trip, give. I'm not going to stand here and ask you for it. That's between you pray about it and you see what the Lord wants to do. We're not going to put the kids out there with the bake sale and make you feel guilted into buying, you know, baked goods that you don't need to eat anyways. We give them to you in the back. You don't have to buy them. You don't have to buy coffee. We give it to you. You know, we don't, we don't, we want you to come here and feel comfortable in, in, in a family environment teaching the word of God. And those things aren't wrong, by the way. I'm not saying churches that do that are wrong. I'm just saying we choose not to because I want this to be a family environment where we come. We study the word of God together. I'm not against the topical messages, but I am against those who take the scriptures and they take them out of context and they twist them to try to get their point across so they can accomplish their goal. I think that's very, very dangerous. There's no eternal value there. Revelation chapter 22 warns us about it. It says this, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now I know that applies specifically and directly to the book of Revelation. But I also don't think it's a coincidence it comes at the end of the Bible. It's being, I, I think it applies to the whole Bible. All of the scriptures, they're all given by the inspiration of God, Paul told Timothy. They're all profitable for doctrine, reproof. They're all, they're all given by God. And none of them should be overlooked simply because I don't like them. Or because I, they're, no, they're no fun to teach. Or because they don't increase the offering. Or because they might convict somebody or make somebody feel bad and they might not come back. It's not my problem. My problem is, can I stand before the Lord? As he's listening in onto the message. As he's hearing what's said every Thursday, every Sunday, and as he's hearing what's said from behind this pulpit, I don't want the Lord going, oh, I didn't mean it that way. I, no, 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 you're teaching them wrong. You're, you're, you're sending them astray. As a pastor and a teacher of God's word, I know that I'll be held accountable for what I teach you and how I handle the scriptures. 
I don't take that lightly. James says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Sometimes people come to me and say, hey, I want to get into ministry. I say, don't do it. They say, well, why not? I said, go do something else. What do you mean? Isn't ministry great? No. Ministry is tough. It's hard. Yes, it's great. But if you can do something else, go do it. If you, if you can't do anything else but get into ministry, I don't mean because I failed at everything else, ministry's left. You know, if, I, I've said, if you can't be successful in the world, the church doesn't need you. I mean, you come to church, but we don't need you as a minister. Go be successful. And then if you feel the Lord's calling and you can't do it, I, I, I will be disobedient, then do it. Otherwise, don't, don't just get into it and think, oh, it'll be fun. You know, we come to work every day and we have Bible study. No, we don't have Bible study. Here we work. During the week, you, got, you guys don't sit down and have Bible study? No, we pray in the morning when we start and we get to work. You mean you don't sit with Jordan and Kevin and study the Bible for two hours? No. We do that at home. That's our devotion time. That's before we get to work. When we come to work, we're getting paid to do a job. We work. There's, there's work to be done. In my opinion, there are too many pastors behind too many pulpits who have, renounced, who have not renounced the hidden things of shame. They're being slipped into churches like alcohol, beer, and the Bible. Perhaps medical marijuana will be the next thing. I've got a marijuana card. It's legal. What's the difference? We're told to renounce the hidden things of shame, the things of our past, the things that we're set free from. Prescription medication sometimes. Oh, but it's legal. I have a prescription for it. Is it godly? Sexual immorality and many other things. In my opinion, there are too many pastors behind too many pulpits who are walking in craftiness. They're walking in craft. Oh, they preach a good message. They're entertaining. They can motivate the people and get things done. They can put together a group of people that can accomplish great things. They can raise money for a new building fund. Their message is motivational, but it's not lasting. We don't need motivational speakers in the church. We need to be taught the word of God. We don't need psychological principles in the church. We need God's word to go forth. We don't need to be fired up and, and we, we need God's word to teach us and to minister to us right where we're at. In my opinion, there are too many pastors behind too many pulpits who are handling the word of God deceitfully. They're twisting it, they're taking it, they're applying it to what they want it to say, to, to motivate people or to manipulate people and that's not what it was meant for. Paul says there at the end of verse 2, Paul, let me ask this question. Paul, if you're not doing these things, how are you preaching the gospel? There at verse 2, look what he says. By manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Let me give you the interpretation for that. The Calvary Chapel interpretation is this. Paul says, how are you teaching the gospel, Paul? I'm simply teaching the word of God simply. I'm just simply teaching the truth. I have, I, I, I've, I've seen that somewhere before, right? It's on our business card. What, what do we do here? Simply teach the word of God simply. It, it's right there. It's clear. It's our tagline that we use. It's what we aim to do. Simply teach God's word simply so that people can come and hear it. They read it. They learn it. They understand it. And then they can apply it to their life and it changes them. It's not that complicated. It's not that hard. Simply teach the word of God simply. I have no hidden agenda here. I'm just preaching the truth. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, there's no hidden. I'm, not, I'm just here sharing the gospel with you. If that were not true, Paul would have turned his back on the church in Corinth long ago. The way they treated him, the way they behaved to him, the way they left him, he would have turned a long time ago. Paul is manifesting. He's making known the truth. And he's placing it in your hands. 
And the word manifest means exactly that, to make known. But it also means to make completely known. To make completely known. All of it's going to be known because a partial truth is just as dangerous as a lie. I'm going to tell you a partial truth. I'll tell you a part of a truth. But if I don't tell you the whole truth, then I'm really lying to you. If I don't tell you the whole verse, I don't speak the whole verse in context, you're not really getting it. All things work together for good. All things work together for good. Don't worry, brother and sister. All things work together for good. What's the rest of that verse say? To those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That is not a verse you can apply to a non-believer. All things are not working together for good. You're not a believer. All things are working together. The enemy is trying to bring you down and destroy you. That's what it means. Remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is how he describes his coming to the church in Corinth. He said, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ crucified. Paul was a brilliant man. Brilliant. He could have run circles around these logically, philosophically. He could have run circles around all of these Judaizers. He was brilliant, and he does. He writes the scriptures. That's where we get them from. But he says, I came to you knowing nothing except Jesus Christ crucified. And the rest of this says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching, they were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, I don't want you to look at me and be impressed. I want you to look at God and be impressed. It's not the power, any power that's coming out of me. He doesn't say, well, I came bragging about all of my miracles and all the things that God's done with me. I, he didn't do that. I, I know none of that. I'm not interested in my past. I'm interested in the power of God. I want that for your faith to be, in the power of God. You see, there are certain ways of speaking, certain methods of teaching, that Paul says, I set those aside when I came to Corinth. I wasn't interested in putting on a show. I wasn't interested in entertaining you. I was interested in teaching you about the Lord. I didn't want you to be impressed with men. I wanted your faith to be in the power of God. Paul says, I preached my gospel before God. And in your conscience, you know it's true. Your conscience will testify to what I'm saying, Paul says. You know in your conscience, I did none of these things. If you're a teacher of God's word, if you're a pastor, like I said, this will go out on the radio. We need to know God is listening to what we teach. When you're in Sunday school, if you're a Sunday school teacher, God's listening to what you teach. When I'm standing here this morning, God is listening to what I teach. As a Calvary Chapel pastor, the thing I thought would have been the most intimidating ever is to have Chuck Smith sitting in, your, sitting in the service you were teaching. I could just imagine, because Chuck, if, you, if you've seen Chuck, you know Chuck, he's, a, he's balding, he, Hawaiian shirt, sitting there, he'd sit there and smile and smile and smile, but you just know, oh, he didn't say that right, oh, you missed that, you missed that truth, that would, be, that would be scary for me, but what should even be more frightening is the Lord's here listening to everything I say, everything I say, everything, every pastor behind every pulpit this morning and every other time they get up behind it, the Lord's listening to every single thing they say. In every message we teach, he's listening. I would hate for the God that I'm representing to even have the thought of, that's not what I meant. 
That's not what I taught. No, 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 no. You're taking my word that has the power to change somebody's life and you're twisting it. Just teach it the way I wrote it. Just simply teach it. Just give it to the people. My word's the one that does the power. I heard something amazing and I've shared it before. It's unbelievable. I I think I heard John Corson say it years and years ago. He says, the word of God will accomplish its purpose. It will not return void. And that's the scriptures. And then he said something after that that stuck with me. He said, your commentary has no such promise. It's the word of God that goes forth and that changes people and that touches people. I can only entertain you for 45 minutes up here. You're not going to remember a thing I say. But you're going to remember what you read in scripture and what you study and what you learn as the word of God touches you and it changes you. It's scary thought thinking the Lord is listening. Look at verse 3 there. We've got to get going. But even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Even if the gospel Paul is preaching is not understood, even though the gospel that Paul is preaching is rejected, there's a reason for it. Why, Paul? Why is that gospel? If it's it's veiled to, it says it right there, it's veiled to those who are perishing. It's hidden or kept a secret because they're perishing. If people do not respond to the glorious gospel message, it isn't Paul's fault. It isn't the gospel's fault. Only those who are perishing miss the message. But what's causing the people to perish, Paul? Why why are they perishing? Is that God's fault? Were they not chosen? No, look, it tells you why they're perishing. They do not believe. They do not believe. When it says their minds are blinded by the God of this age, it doesn't mean they are innocent victims. Jesus, speaking of of himself, told us that light came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. They didn't believe. In other words, mankind is so enthralled with darkness and with sin, they don't want to entertain anything else. Perhaps they're so built up in education and knowledge, I can't understand it, therefore I don't believe it. Jesus made it clear. He came to save those who would believe. Perhaps those that love darkness, they're not willing to give up their life of sin. They don't understand how anything could be any better than what I have. There's nothing better than the life I'm living. You see, sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that to become a Christian, you have to be addicted to drugs, you have to lose your family, you have to lose everything you have. And then your life will get better. No, no. That's why he would say it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because someone with wealth and knowledge may look, well, I don't need that. That works great as a crutch for him, but I don't need that. Because you rely on your knowledge, you rely on your wealth. What happens when it's all gone? You see, it's belief that he says. It's it's believing. G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, the God of this world. By the way, who's the God of this world? Satan, the God of this world, is able only to blind the minds of the unbelieving. He's only able to blind the minds of the unbelieving. Refusal to believe is the secret and reason of the blindness that happens to men. The moment someone believes, their eyes are opened. The veil is removed. It comes off. They can see it. But if you don't believe, Satan is keeping you blinded. He doesn't want you to see that there's life out there. 
He doesn't want you to understand. He, doesn't, he wants to tell you that it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. You're not that bad. He wants to keep that veil on your face. That's what Paul's saying here. But it can all be reversed by believing. But Satan doesn't want that. He wants to make you think that he doesn't really exist. Oh, that, that you're just, that, that's that Christian thing. There's really no God. There's no Satan. It's been said the greatest lie that Satan ever told was that he didn't exist. Take a look around in the world and tell me if there's not evil in the world. That should be enough evidence for Satan existing. He doesn't want them to see the light of the gospel in the glory of Jesus Christ. And just to be clear, Paul says there in verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves. It's not us, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservant for Jesus' sake. Paul sought to distinguish himself from the false teachers who did in fact preach themselves. I am not preaching myself. As I said earlier, there are too many pastors behind too many pulpits preaching themselves. It's okay to use personal stories to make a point. It's okay to tell a joke and make people laugh a little bit to get your point across. But when the message is all about the pastor and his life because he wants to be relatable, and you leave feeling good because now you know him a little bit better, and you heard about the mistakes he made this week or the funny stories that he told, and people walk out praising the pastor for his jokes or for his entertainment or for the fact that he's a good speaker or for the media department's great little video they put together. They praise the worship team, sometimes their performance, and they miss the big picture. Those are all great things. There's nothing wrong with them. But the focus slowly gets taken off of God and put on the stuff and the people. That's when it becomes dangerous. None of these things are bad on their own. But if we tie them all together and the people are not praising God, there's a problem. They're praising a church. They're praising a ministry. If they're not being drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, then the church has failed. They've, they've, they've failed to do their job. Paul says, we're just preaching Christ Jesus our Lord. We're just making it simple. And ourselves, he says, we're preaching ourselves. What we're putting ourselves out there as, as bondservants. That's what he said there. We're bondservants. When it comes to me, Paul says, I'm a bondservant. The term is doulos. What does it mean? It's a slave. It's somebody who is completely controlled by someone else. I'm a bondservant. I'm a slave. Paul considered himself a servant or a slave. Of who? Right there he told us of the people in Corinth for Jesus Christ's sake. Ultimately, he's a slave of Jesus Christ, but because I'm serving there in Corinth, I'm a slave to you. I'm a bondservant. I'm a slave to you. Paul was not a self-promoter. He wasn't a self-promoter. When he presented himself, it was as a servant. That's what he talks about himself. I'm a servant. I'm a minister. He didn't need a title. Paul, what are you doing? I'm just serving the people. His heart was to please Jesus and not man. And although he appreciated thanks, I'm sure he did, he didn't require it. He didn't need it to continue on. He does not lose heart because he's been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen very carefully, and perhaps I'm speaking to myself here. You can't promote yourself and magnify Jesus simultaneously. It doesn't work. You can't be the one on display and point it. It doesn't work. The spotlight only shines on one person at a time. And if it's on me, that means Jesus is in the dark. And I think too many churches make that mistake. Terms like promotional tours, image consultants, fan clubs, they have no place in Christian vocabulary in the church, especially for the pastor. Let's face it. Social media, who does it promote? What is it? It's a fan club. I mean, how many Twitter followers do we have? 
How many Facebook followers do we have? Kevin said zero. We don't have Twitter. Or no, we three? Or did you say zero? Zero. We don't have Twitter, you know? But you see what happens, and I'm going to use it for good. And what you end up building is, if you're not careful, you're building a fan club for yourself. I don't think Paul would have been on Twitter and Facebook, other than to maybe share pictures with family if he could. It wasn't about promoting himself. Can you imagine a slave with a fan club? It doesn't fit. Why would a slave come follow me? I'm a slave. A slave doesn't have time to maintain a fan club. A slave is too busy serving the one that he's under, the one that's controlling him. Paul was a man who practiced genuine humility. He didn't trust in himself. He didn't commend himself or preach himself. He only wanted to lead people to Jesus Christ and build them up in their faith. I hope that's the heart of our church. I hope that's, the, I hope that's what comes across for me. I hope you don't think for a moment this is about me. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It would have been easy for Paul to build a fan club. He could have done it. He could have taken advantage of weak people and thrive on associating with great men. The Judaizers, that's the way they were operating. It was who they studied under, who they were connected to. These are the people I know. Oh, I met so-and-so pastor this conference. Here's a picture of me and pastor so-and-so. Let me take a, a selfie. Look who I was hanging out with, this big pastor over there. It, it's, it, you laugh, but it's true. It's happening in churches. And why, why is that being put out there? So, so everyone can look at me and go, oh, wow, he knows Greg Laurie. Oh, wow, he, knows, he knew Billy Graham. Oh, wow, he knew, he knew this person. He knew that person. See, there's nothing wrong with taking a picture of yourself and somebody, but you have to get inside your heart and go, Lord, what is my reason for doing this? Is there, am I, is there some alternative motive because your heart will lie to you? Oh, no, no, you're just, you're just showing people where you're at. You're, no, why is the reason for it? And please don't say that every selfie is, is wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm saying as a pastor, as a leader, it's my job to point people to Christ. And I have the obligation to be very, very careful. I'm not drawing people unto myself. And every single pastor has that obligation. Look there at verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul refers back to creation. Genesis 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. The same God who created light in the dark has the power to give spiritual light in the hearts of men. The same God. Notice there, in case you're wondering, the Apostle Paul believes in creation. He's a creationist. He talks about God speaking in the light. The same God who commanded that spoke light shine out of darkness. He talks about it. The New Living Translation puts that verse this way. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Just to review for a minute, I was going to try to get to verse 7 today, but we'll wait for next week for that. Paul's telling the Corinthians in church, he's telling the Corinthians there and us in church this morning, because of the mercy that was shown to me, because I've been entrusted with this new covenant, I don't lose heart. I continue on. I persevere. And unlike the false teachers, Paul says, I've renounced the hidden things of shame. I've turned away from those things. I don't walk in craftiness. I do not handle the word of God deceitfully, and your conscience will testify of that. Look back of my time with you. What does it say? If a man can understand the gospel Paul preaches, it's for two reasons. Their minds have been blinded by the gods of this age, and that reason for that is because they do not believe. 
It's real simple. Paul didn't use persuasive words, but he simply taught the word of God. The same God who spoke light into the world will speak understanding into your heart and to my heart if we would only believe. That's why when we look at non-believers, we look at things like evolution and creation, we look at biblical truths that make so much sense to a believer. Rebecca said last week after the message, she goes, if you didn't believe, last week's message would have made no sense to you. You'd have thought, what is he talking about? New covenant, old covenant, it means nothing. You're, you're, you're veiled, you don't, you don't get it. It, makes, it means nothing to you. But those who believe, go, praise the Lord. We're in the new covenant. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you minister to us, for the Apostle Paul, the way he writes. Lord, in his Mother's Day, we thank you for the moms in our life. Those that are here and maybe those that have moved on. They've impacted our lives. Lord, I just pray this morning as we say goodbye here, that every person would be a believer. They would re remove that veil by believing on you. They would see their need for a Savior. They would see their sin would convict them. The things they've done wrong, the mistakes they've made, the way they've treated people, that it would be convicting. And they would see their need to come before you and say, Lord, forgive me. And they would receive the freedom from that guilt. And the freedom, the oppression from that shame would be gone. And they could begin a new life and walk with you. And for those of us that are believers, thanks for the reminder that we're stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be found faithful with it. May we not lose heart in it. In Jesus' name, amen.